This morning is January 5th. It is 2014. Come on now. 2014. I don't know about you, but I'm glad 2013 is over. It was good, but I don't want to do it again. I was lucky to make it out of that year with a few pieces of me left. And the Lord's putting them back together and I'm excited. This morning we're going to talk to you about glaring contradictions. Amen. A glaring contradiction. Now, don't tense up. This is not the beat you up message. That one will come next week. This week is a let's acknowledge where we are. Amen. Okay, so if you if you get to around 2 Kings 8 or 10, I want to start to talk to you about a setting. Now, I do this sometimes, and some of you young people that hated history are not going to like me any better. But history is his story. And if you want to know about the Bible story, you need to know a little bit about what's going on in the world around it. Because the Bible is not divorced from human affairs. It is God working within human affairs. It is his story, his story of redemption, his story of mercy, his story of salvation. So in world affairs, what is happening around our story is somewhere around 2 Kings 8, a mighty Hebrew prophet named Elisha. If he was an American, we'd call him Elisha. But since he's a Hebrew, we're going to call him Elisha. Elisha had an awesome anointing. You know why? He was discipled. He was raised up by a man of God. He walked in the footsteps of a man of God. And he served in that man of God's ministry before God gave him his own. How many of you know that if you're faithful with a little, God will give you more? So Elisha was faithful with what God had given him. And so God gave him twice as much as his predecessor had had. Elisha was the kind of man that when he showed up at the Oval Office, the president better tense up. Because he goes all the way to Damascus to talk to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. What's a Hebrew prophet got doing? I mean, what business does he have going to Syria? But he goes to Syria because God has sent him. And while he's in Syria... He prophesies to a man named Hazel. And Hazel says, what am I? I'm a dead dog. Why would you even come talk to me? He said, because you're going to succeed your master. So then Elijah's prophecy comes true. And Hazel kills Ben-Hadad. It's crazy. The Bible talks about the raising up and the pulling down of world leaders. God manipulates the event of mankind for one purpose and one purpose only, to get you to call out to Him. So maybe you didn't like the last administration. Maybe you don't like this administration. You might not like the next one. But one thing that we know for sure is our God is working in the affairs of men to get us to call out to Him. It turns out that during this time period in Israel's history, somewhere around 840 B.C., they're not doing particularly well. And because the people are not calling on God, God decides to do something to shrink them as a nation. Look at your neighbor and say, God can't bless me while I'm in sin. Church can lie to you. It can tell you that you're blessed no matter what you do. It can tell you you'll eat the best of the land no matter what you do. But biblically speaking, that's a farce and a fairy tale. 
You are the king's children, but it's when we act like the king's children that you eat at the king's table. It's when we are credited in righteousness and we walk in the righteousness we've been credited with that we see the fruits of righteousness. It's not enough to declare a thing. I can stand here and tell you I'm a unicorn all day long, and yet I stand here a roly-poly. That's just how this works. You have to be what you say you are. Somebody say amen to that. Wouldn't the world be a better place if when somebody said, I am Christian, they were telling the truth? It would be a better place. Listen to what God does. This is 2 Kings 10 and verse 32. This is happening around 814 B.C. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazael overpowered the Israelites throughout the territory of the east of the Jordan and in all the land of Gilead, the region of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh, from Aror by the Arnon Gorge through Gilead to Bashan. Now, why did God bring the 12 tribes of Israel into Canaan? To give them the promised land. He brought them in to displace those who were there before them that were sinning. He brought them there to be an example of his government on earth. But when they don't do right, he reduces them. Are you upset that the church doesn't have a larger voice in world affairs? Are you upset that the church is uh, ostracized, that the church is not held in regard? If we don't do right, then what is it we would be asking God to bless and expand? See, in our day, if you want to sell a book, you write about the prayer of Jabez and you tell people that their lives are blessed by God regardless. And people buy that. Of course, they'll also buy things on TV for $19.99 that they know will not work because they were told they were work and they like false hope. But in the kingdom of God, the way to blessing is obedience. The way to shrinking the way to reducing, the way to wasting, to declension, is disobedience. Israel was disobedient, but God didn't want them to be. You ever been asleep and somebody woke you up? All kind of ways to be woken up, isn't there, Nolan? I could come whisper sweet nothings in Nolan's ear. Arise, my son. This day holds promise for you, right? Who'd like to be woken up like that? Not me whispering, somebody whispering. <laughs> Scared Spencer to death. Of course, another way to, walk, to wake him up be walk in and slam the door, huh? Or walk in, grab his foot, and drag him down the stairs. All kind of ways to wake somebody up. God wanted to wake this nation up. How many of you heard the book of Jonah? Read the book of Jonah? Seen the book of Jonah? Did you know that Jonah is mentioned before the book of Jonah? In 2 Kings, turn with me to the 14th chapter. Jonah comes on the scene somewhere around 780 B.C. And he begins to prophesy. Look at 2 Kings 14 starting in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Is that good or bad, saints? Y'all talk to me this morning. Good or bad? bad. 
So he did bad, which he had caused Israel to commit. Verse 25. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel had spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittiah, the prophet from Gath, Hefer. How can Israel do bad but God restored their boundaries? This is grace. Isaiah 29 speaks of this kind of grace. This is unmerited favor. Israel deserved to continue shrieking until they became nothing. But because God loved them, because God made a promise to their forefathers, and because of faithfulness in previous years, God's going to give them another chance. He's going to expand their territory even yet while they don't deserve it. You know, there's all kind of ways to wake somebody up. You could punish them or you could bless them. But your intention might be the same, to wake them up. God had already tried the stick, now here came the carrot. He had already reduced them, and while they're reducing, guess who they blame? Everybody except themselves. I believe that our country is in a time of declension. It's not that there's no hope. I just think that we can see it all around us. There may yet be a time of blessing coming. But the message, whether we're declining or expanding, is that God is trying to wake a nation up. He's trying to restore something in us. Now, many of you will know Jonah from the stories of Veggie Tales. Jonah was a prophet, though he never really got it. Sad but true. true. You know Jonah is a man who did not go prophesy. Of course, when his people didn't deserve a blessing, but God wanted to give them a blessing, he had no problem going to prophesy. Now we found the message of the American preacher. God will bless you, he'll bless you, he'll bless you regardless of how you live. That's what we hear everywhere. We hear God wants you rich, God wants you blessed, 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 and your blessings will be a witness to the lost. They will want blessings and then they'll get saved. How right was Jonah with God, though? He's on the wrong side of God's judgment, isn't he? Jonah had some uh, some prophets that were contemporaries. You might not know this. That's why I thought I'd tell you. Amos prophesied around the same time as Jonah. Jonah comes on the scene in 781 B.C. and his buddy Amos shows up in about 786 and prophesies to 746. Turn with me to the book of Amos. Be in the fifth chapter. Say there when you're there. In the fifth chapter of Amos, the 27th verse, listen to what he prophesied. Actually, let's back up to the 26th verse. You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you in exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the Almighty. A contemporary of Jonah named Amos prophesied what? Judgment. Judgment by Syria and Assyria. How popular do you think that message was? I bet Amos, whose name means burden, had a small flock. I bet he was not building the mega 
six flags over Jesus that adorns our interstates today and blesses our homosexual mayors. I bet Amos had a small following. He had another contemporary, a prophet named Hosea. And in Hosea, the ninth chapter, say there when you're there, in the first verse, do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Are those kind words, friends? Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and they will eat the unclean food in... So we have two men around the time of Jonah prophesying Israel is going into captivity. And what do we have Jonah prophesying? No, the Lord's going to expand Israel's borders. You say, but wait, they were all right. They were all right. Why was God expanding Israel's borders? Have you ever wondered why Judas uh, kissed Jesus before he betrayed him? This was a chance for God to bless Israel and bless Israel and bless Israel even while Israel was spitting in his face. And he said, I'm going to be kind to you, but you cannot outrun your sin. There is a day it's coming home. Friends, if there was a message America ever needed, we need to know what the sign of Jonah is. Because God has been so kind to us that it could cause us to miss the fact that we've been laden with sin. Am I telling the truth? Then somebody say, Pastor, that's true. We're going to start off the new year right. You're going to teach me to preach. I'm going to teach you to respond. Amen. This is not a downer message. It won't end here, friends. It won't end here because you have something to say about it. You have something to do about it. Both men prophesied about an Assyrian captivity. The largest book in the Bible that deals with the Assyrian captivity is probably the book of Isaiah. Prophesying around 740, he begins to call out to the northern kingdom. You're going into captivity. Your great sin has offended God. Jeremiah followed up Isaiah and he said to the southern kingdom, I thought when I judged you, the northern, you would repent, but you didn't. Have we seen instances of judgment in this country? Our newspaper headlines from 2000 on, America has had reason to be scared. We've seen the rise of false religions. We've seen fanatical men kill people in the name of their wicked satanic God. And the churches remain silent. I think it's time for us to wake up. I think you can do something about it. I think that it's a terrible shame that in the prison system, inmates are converted many times over to Islam rather than Christianity. It's almost as if everybody is more excited about their false God than America is about its true God. We have a choice. Do we want to go with the flow? Do we want to cut against the grain? This human being wants to cut against the grain. In the story of Jonah, we find a man who is living in the declining times of Israel who was sent with an unusual message. And saints, we have an unusual message. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. Say there when you are there.
Jonah, like most Christians today, liked the word when it was about blessings and grace, but not so much when it was about judgment. We love to hear 365 confessions of wealth, but when it comes to preaching about holiness and the character of God, our pulpits are relatively silent. A preacher named Paris Reedhead said maybe 50 years ago now, 40 to 50 years ago, he would put a moratorium on the preaching of salvation. He would say, no more sharing John 3.16. Instead, preach only on the righteousness of God, the character of God, until men were crying out in the streets. How do I be saved? He said, the problem with this gospel-hardened nation is that we all know how to be saved, but we don't know why we need to be saved. We don't know what we need to be saved from. We've looked in the mirror, and instead of declaring that we are the problem, we've said it's someone else. I'm a pretty good old boy, and Jesus wants to save me. But it's not true. It's never been true. It wasn't true of Adam. It wasn't true of Seth. It wasn't true of the first few human beings, and it won't be true of the last few human beings. The Bible says that we are enemies of God, alienated by sin. But because of the great love of God, He has brought us near. Near. Do you want to be near your King? In the book of Jonah, I find an amazing thing. Let's read that first line. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. The Lord our God does not just want prophets and preachers to preach about righteousness, not just about blessings. What does he say to go preach to Nineveh? Preach against its wickedness. Today we have a professional courtesy among our clergy. I won't call out your sin. You don't call out mine. Let's just only say nice things. We quote the Proverbs that our mamas taught us that said if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. That sounds like wisdom. Of course, if Joel was on fire right now, he was burning, what would you do to get his attention? Well, if I can't say anything that's not nice, how many times could I say, Joel, brother, God bless you. I don't mean to interrupt your burning, but I think you may be on fire. Is that loving? Go push him down. Roll on him. Throw dirt on him. Put a wet blanket over him. Pour water on him. Do anything you can to help him get the fire out so that he can come to his senses. Amen? The church has lost that kind of tenacity. And God wants us to have it again. Not militant, I don't want you to wear army fatigues, but militant spiritually. One that says, I'm not so much worried about offending people who are already sentenced to death. I'd like to tell them about a way to life. A kind of radical evangelism that doesn't so much diminish Jesus to an acceptable level for them, but instead exalts Him to the highest level so that anyone with a right heart would beg to be included in Him. How much do you love your Jesus? A little bit or a lot? 
How proud of him are you? Then it ought to hurt your heart to see him diminished and people beg others to follow him. You'll never find that example in the Bible. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. If he was a charismatic, then he probably just said, you know, the Lord's led me a new direction. If he was a Baptist, he probably just held a vote among his smoking deacons. And they overruled his direction and he had to go to Tarshish, you know. Tarshish and Nineveh. I have a map that I want to show you. Now these words are kind of small. But these places are so far apart that I couldn't get them on your screen hardly. The little box you see in this upper left-hand corner is Tarshish. It's at the tip of Spain. You have to go all the way to the right-hand side of your screen between the Mediterranean Sea and the Caspian Sea, up past the Euphrates, up past the Tigris to get to Nineveh. Is there a place on earth that has a more opposite direction from Nineveh than Tarshish? The brother was on the right road, but he was headed the wrong direction. I mean, he could pick east or west and eventually they meet in the same line, but he's headed the wrong way on that road. How many people are called of God, but headed the exact opposite way of where God said and calling themselves blessed the whole way because they're called of God? Had he prophesied correctly before? Yes. Was he called a prophet? Yes. And what about this man who is now disobedient? Well, probably the church of his day taught once obedient, always blessed. Let's see how God feels about that. By the way, what did he do to get a ticket? What did he have to do to get a ticket on the ship to Tarshish? Somebody help me. If you're going to go get on a Greyhound bus today in downtown Houston, what do you got to do? Oh, my goodness, you got to pay the fare, huh? If we're going to have a little moment of silence today in church, I'd ask you. Your little trip of disobedience in the direction that's the opposite way the Lord told you to go? How high has that fare been? What do you think it cost him to get on a ship to go to Tarsus? Well, let's just say it cost him 35 bucks, but didn't it cost him a whole lot more than that? How many times has the price of disobedience been so much higher than the price of obedience? See, we're scared to death. If I go to Nineveh, this will happen and that might happen. And the cost of obedience seems so high. What the devil never tells you is the cost of disobedience is much, much higher. Oh, somebody give me an amen out there. See, those few moments that you indulged in something might cost you years of pain. That one decision to run away from what God said to go to can cost you years of pain. And it's only the grace of God that you get a chance to turn around. Let me just clear something up that I've been saying all day. I've been saying it all decade. I've been saying it for two decades. 
The grace of God teaches men to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God is not a license for immorality. This man cannot claim the grace of God while he is headed deliberately a direction God won't bless. Grace is the opportunity in the circumstance to turn around. That's what grace is. Somebody say amen. amen. Then the Lord. Oh, I should tell you about Nineveh, huh? Y'all all know about Nineveh already? You know all there is to know about Nineveh? Anybody have any idea how big Beltway 8 is? If you go all the way around it, how many miles it is? Somebody give me a guess. Brother says 80 miles. Brother says 35 miles. It's 88 miles around Beltway 8. It's an easy fact to remember. If you get on Beltway 8 at 59 and you hang a left, you'll eventually come back to 59. 88 miles later. The city of Nineveh was over 60 miles around. Think about that. No automobiles. No skyscrapers. It's over 60 miles in circumference. They had a city wall that was 100 feet high. Friends, we are talking about the 7th and 8th century B.C. It was wide enough for three chariots to be on side by side. Chariots were the tanks of the day. It's trying to project strength. Trying to show by the enormity of its military complex that it's not to be messed with. The man Nimrod was its founder. If you're remembering Nimrod, he shows up before Genesis 10 and 11 as a man who caused the Tower of Babel, a worldwide rebellion to God. That was the foundation of Nineveh. Nineveh reached its height, its zenith in world history under a man named Sennacherib. Or if you grew up in the churches I did, Sennacherib. Or here recently in our church, Snickerib. I'm just snickeribbing you. Sennacherib faced Hezekiah and God sent an angel in the book of Isaiah killed 185,000 men to deliver righteous Hezekiah from Sennacherib. But it took an angel from heaven to deliver out of his hands. Is Nineveh a world power? Is Nineveh mighty? Jonah's best friends, his contemporaries have prophesied Nineveh is going to conquer Israel because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And now Jonah is being told to go to Nineveh. He said, no, thank you, Lord. Where is furthest in the known world from Nineveh? And the answer to that question was Tarshish. And he went there instead. And he paid a fare and he got on a boat, but he's about to pay a price much higher than the ticket. Can you say amen to that? I hope I'm preaching to somebody today because you might not be all the way to Tarshish. You might be just out of Joppa. You might have just crossed the island of Malta. You might be going around the Lee of Italy. You may not be so far gone that you can't come back yet. And I hope to turn you around. Oh, verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. What's your plan like, friends? Since you chose your course 
as the brother prophesied during worship, there's a way that seems right unto a man. And in the end, it leads to death and destruction. Since you charted your course, how you been doing? I find people resent when you tell them they need to turn around, but they're fine with criticizing their own course. That's interesting, isn't it? You don't like your life now, but you're not willing to do anything about it. Famous Russian author Tolstoy said, Everyone dreams of changing the world. No one starts with themselves. I believe today that God has a message for us to chart a new course, to do something different. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. You ever notice you start taking an inventory of your life when things aren't going right? You know, nobody's in the hospital. You're not having any financial trauma. No relatives are mad at you this week and it's all fine. But let somebody get a lung disease and all of a sudden they're examining their relationships from the greatest to the smallest. They're eliminating everything that's superfluous in their life and they're squaring themselves with the Lord. And that way calamity is a blessing. But it shouldn't take a calamity for a prophet of God, should it? Friends, you're called to be priest of the Most High God. Don't make Him set your barley field on fire to get your attention. He'll do whatever it takes because he loves you. And if judgment's not working, he'll try blessing. And if blessing's not working, he'll try judgment. I don't know which side of the coin you're on these days, but I know he wants your ear. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Somebody say, that's dangerous. Matthew's tired. He's yawning. And I'm tired. I've been yawning a lot. And one time Matthew called me and he said, are we going? And I said, we're going. I'll be there in a couple minutes. The problem is I then got into the shower. And while in the shower, I determined that I was too tired to stand up. And I converted my shower to a bathtub. And about two and a half hours later, Matt called again and said, why aren't you here? And I was not there because I nearly drowned myself in my own bathtub. It is dangerous to be asleep sometimes. The judgment of God has fallen on his life. Is he keenly aware of it? No. He's asleep. I said, but wait a minute. Even Jesus slept during a storm. Jesus slept during a demonic storm. Friends, you can sleep and laugh at the devil's attacks on your life if you're in the will of God. But when God is trying to get your attention, shame on us if we're asleep. Keith Green said in the 80s, early 80s, the church was asleep in the light. What Paris Reedhead said in the 60s and Keith Green said in the 80s, we can confidently affirm is still true in 2014, but it does not have to be us. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, wake up, O sleeper. Let Christ's light shine upon you. Do you want Jonah to wake up, saints? Or would you rather him stay asleep and drown? Because the book of Jonah is going to come to a tragically short end if he stays asleep. Do you want him to wake up? The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up! 
call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. How bad is it when the Lord of glory has to use pagans to get his people's attention? But he'll do it, friends. He will do it. You'll be at work, mully grubbing it. Mr. Melancholy, all beat up and down. And God will appoint a Gentile who will walk over to you and say, Man, I thought you was a Christian. Oh, how convicting. It's like a slap in the middle of sleep. Jennifer and I watched a YouTube where a woman walked in, slapped her husband every day for 23 days to wake him up. It is sickly humorous. I don't know why. It's also cruel. I don't know how he could go to sleep knowing that she's going to slap him to wake him up. And I don't know how it could equally surprise him every day for 23 days, but it did. And he must be tough or have lost some kind of sensitivity in his face or something because she smacked him. Pow! And the first day, it's like, ooh. Second day, mm. after that, it just got downright funny. Of course, the body of Christ is doing the same thing. We're falling asleep in the light and the Holy Ghost is giving us goads. He's trying to turn our direction. He's trying to wake us up. And meanwhile, the YouTube audience is Satan and his minions and he's just laughing at us. How hard it is to wake up those who are called to be alive in Christ. They appoint a Gentile captain and he's worried about his life. But apparently Jonah felt pretty secure, you know. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. Proverbs 16, 33 has something to say about that. You can cast your dice, friends. You can cast your lots. But where do they fall into the lap of? The Lord. So who do you think the lots indicated? was the problem. See, we can point to every problem among the lost. We can look the storm that is descending upon our nation and we can blame President Obama and we can blame the Congress and we can blame our neighbors. But the fault lies with the church. And if we don't take responsibility for our time and don't take responsibility for our lives, we're twice as guilty as they are. They don't even know what they're doing. But we do know. They don't know it's wrong to be headed towards Tarshish. They've lived their whole lives that way. But we know better. We need to stand up and protest. We need a Holy Ghost reformation. We need to become protestants of sin. We need to find our voice again. All that has to happen for evil to prevail is good men do nothing. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? You want to know why I need to know who I'm with on a missions trip? Ask these sailors how important it was to have asked Jonah these questions before they set sail. Hmm? The Vincents came all the way from Lafayette, Louisiana just to meet us so they could go on a missions trip. 
I would not go even with the Vincents until I got to know who they were. Because 15 minutes after we crossed the border, there was an AK-47 in my face. And I needed to know all were right with God. There was not one sleeping Jonah on our ship. Yeah, somebody say amen. amen. Have you examined your household? Among your friends? Your friends that you esteem and you love? Are you living in a way that would make you Jonah? The worst kind of wickedness is religious wickedness because it excuses itself. It says, because I know these things, it's all right that I do these things. I say, because we know these things, it's even more damnable if we do these things. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for all of this trouble. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country from? What people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the land. I bet that was his moment of awakening. I bet in that moment when he had to stand up and testify before men. And we're going to find out he had previously been grumbling to them. But in that moment when put on the spot, some deposit welled up inside him. And he remembered who he was. I worship the Lord. And that makes me different. Then he does an extraordinarily godly thing. He does exactly what America and what you and what I need to do. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. When we can stand up and remember, we uniquely are called to walk with our God. We have a standard that is higher than the world's standard. We have a king that is above their kings. And we have a call that is above their call. When we take responsibility for our actions, we'll see a change in the climate. We can't stand back and bemoan the storm until we examine the cause of the storm. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe there was a time when this nation was better off than it is today, spiritually speaking? Universally, the answer seems to be yes. Then if it's not the church's fault that it's not today, then whose fault is it? You knew what the devil came to do. You were warned. It has to be that in some generations we began to let it slip. We thought, well, if I go to Tarshish, I'll probably get a chance to turn around or maybe I'll have many turns in my life. It's okay if I spend a decade doing what I want to. Let me do this and then I'll be obedient to the Lord. And the problem is, is our children and children's children learned that kind of behavior. And the Lord became an optional add-on 
to our lives. We were pretty good people and He's now a big part of our lives. Instead of we were God-awful monsters that He had mercy on and swallowed up our lives that we might become something new altogether in Him. If any part of your life still belongs to you, then none of it belongs to God. This is something that no preacher would have blinked at in the 17th century, and today you have to stop and think about what I said. If any part of your life still belongs to you, then none of your life belongs to God. It's like asking someone, will you follow this person? Yes! As long as I agree with them then you are not following that person. You are following you, and they are simply a puppet figure as a leader. Is Jesus your puppet prince, or is he the all-powerful monarch of your life? See, if we follow him when we like and do not follow him when we dislike, then he is not truly our Lord. Jonah came to a life-saving conclusion. I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord who made the heaven and the sea. This is a revival in him. How do you know it's a revival? Because he, for the first time in this whole story, is taking responsibility for his own actions. You want to know when somebody's doing right with God? When they realize how wrong they've done and take responsibility for it. It's become something of a fad in the church today for people to serve God for a few months and then be wayward for months and hope that the church begs them back. You can't come to Christ that way. You can't because Christ demands that you know what you're being saved from and you give Him all of your life. He will not lower Himself to become a vacuum cleaner salesman pushing tithe and religion. He's the ultimate. And when we come to the place where we realize everything in our lives is the result of our own choices, then He can save us. What other conclusion has Jonah come to? I deserve death. Throw me into the sea. How do we come to Christ without going through the cross? How do we come to Christ without deserving death? And when did we come to the conclusion that we deserved death? When did we make that proclamation? When did we let the whole world know that we were vile? And He had mercy on us. This used to be the only way the cross of Christ was preached. And it's no longer. Or very seldom. But Jonah understood it. And even though he's cast into the sea, it's not the end of him. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault. Can you say that? It is my fault. Oh, come on one more time. It is my fault. Boy, it's hard to do, isn't it? We don't like that phrase. What we want to say is you just didn't understand me. 
It was a miscommunication. See, what had happened was we want to list our extenuating circumstances. Jonah didn't do that. He doesn't stop and say, see, the thing is, is Nineveh is a giant military complex and I know if I go preach to them, they're going to repent, they're going to get stronger and God's going to use them to destroy my people. He doesn't say that. He simply takes responsibility for his life and what he has caused. And he says, toss me into the sea. Now, is he committing suicide? It's a, it's a, it's a question. It's a fair question. And in a group like this, somebody out there might think it's a noble thing to just go take a concrete dive, right? You know how you know he's not committing suicide? He said, when you throw me into the sea, it will become calm. He had a revelation of the answer. The problem is me. And when you toss me over, the whole situation will change because all that was ever needed was a complete surrender. And I've known it the whole time. I just couldn't do it till now. Oh, friends, that's an altar call. All that was ever needed was a total surrender. And maybe you just couldn't do it till now. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. The sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Now, if you remove that from the book of Jonah and say, throw it in the end of Matthew. Say, throw it into the end of Mark or Luke or John. You would think we were talking about the crucifixion. Please, please don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man's life. It's what was necessary to calm the sea. Killed by Israel, for Israel. That's a Wednesday night message. We won't digress. Those of you that are spiritual, look into it. You'll understand me. Oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. What calms the sea, friends? When a man takes responsibility and accepts the judgment that he deserves. It calms the sea. All becomes right with the world. And that's where the story really should end. The story really should end with, God told me to go. I said no. He said yes. He beat me until I came to my senses. And then, when I agreed, I died. And that would be righteous. It would be fine. But that is not the end of the story. It turns out that in the gospel, death is a glaring contradiction. It's a paradox that when you lose your life is when life begins. All we know about Jonah up to this point is he prophesied what he liked to prophesy and refused what he didn't. All we know about Jonah up to this point is he's a failure in the kingdom of God. But at the moment he dies, he becomes something altogether better. 
Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. At His death, it began to turn men around. Have you ever read that line in Romans 11 that said, If their rejection brought us life, what will their acceptance bring except the resurrection from the dead? Oh, man. When Jonah was killed, thrown into the sea, men got born again. But that's not the end of his story, and judgment is not the end of your story. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Who else was somewhere three days and three nights? Oh, I love this. He was a prophet, yet he was running from God. He was drowned, yet he remained alive. He was eaten by a fish, yet saved by the very same fish. Somebody say, oh, the ways of God are a mystery. Let us go to the second chapter. The fourth verse. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple somewhere in the belly of a well. Jonah began to see in death what he could not have seen while living his own life. What has swallowed you, friends? What calamity has overtaken you? Because what you think is your greatest foe, your greatest adversary, what you think is killing you, might actually be giving you the chance to see what life is about. He said, I said I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. You know what's not in Tarshish? The temple. But apparently that fish only knew how to swim one direction. And it was east. It was east towards the presence of God. And who had ever thought a man could be saved by vomit? But look at the 10th verse. The 10th verse says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. See, when we get to a place where our own deeds have overwhelmed us, when we get to a place when we can clearly see that our path is leading to destruction and we say, Lord, we deserve to be thrown in the sea. This is when He can provide something that saves you, but it has to swallow you whole. If Jonah's head was hanging outside the fish, his life really would have ended. If half of his body was hanging out, it's a long swim from Tarshish to Nineveh. He was either all the way in the whale or he was not in the whale at all. Are you hearing me? See, this is the problem with part-time Christianity. We want to be saved, but we don't want to be in the belly of the whale. Can I tell you? Newsboys wrote a song about it. Feeling pretty nutritious here. Swimming with the fishes here in the belly of a whale. (laughs) It's a clever song. Of course, you probably weren't singing it if you were there. What goes on in a stomach? 
There's acid on him. At the same time he's trying to digest what is happening to him, the situation is trying to digest him. You talk about the narrow way, he's in the ever-narrowing way. It's going to end in death or life, one or the other, and there is no in-between. The same mouth that swallowed him is the mouth that spit him out to salvation. Isn't God good? Praise God if the world is vomiting you out. You know, we can get vomited out by the world or we can be lukewarm and be vomited out by Jesus. There is no middle ground. You need to be altogether lost, altogether wicked, altogether sold out for Baal or altogether sold out for our God. There is no in-between because in-between is just like muddy water. Nobody wants to drink it. It makes us all want to puke. When do we get saved though? Look at the second chapter and seventh verse. He says, when my life was ebbing away. Ebbing away. Not a sudden death, a slow death. You show me a man who was not ebbing away and I'll show you a man who's never really been saved. If you don't have a death sentence, friend, then you see the whale as a satanic torture device instead of a salvation ship. For you, the church becomes a structure of containment rather than something that liberates you to salvation. And so you run from it every few months and need to be invited back to it. But you know what? Jonah never thought about leaving the whale until the whale spit him out. Are you hearing me? He was completely faithful to his mission. Three days and three nights. In the third chapter, I care only to point out one verse because I want to bring our message to a close. In the 10th verse of chapter 3, you find the very heart of God. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them destruction He had threatened. That's grace! It is grace to not receive the judgment you deserve. Grace taught them to say no to ungodliness. Grace caused them to repent. Grace was not them continuing to sin and claiming to receive the message of Jonah. Can we be honest? Jonah didn't really want them to repent. He's a preacher of righteousness, but he's actually upset when they repent. He'd rather receive the judgment they deserve. He's a type of the religious system that forgets that they too were saved as an act of grace. But that's not our message today. What is the heart of God? The heart of God is when someone turns. Jennifer wrote upon our bathroom mirror and marker last night a verse that's going to be an anthem for us. Can I share with you that? Is that okay? I think it's the heart of God. Would you put Psalm 85 on the screen? This is Psalm 85, 11. 
Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. You want to be viewed from heaven rightly? You want God to look upon you favorably? You want to have all right with you in the heavens? Faithfulness has to spring up out of our lives. You know what? Jonah may not have had it all together. He may not have had it all right. But he was going to do what the Lord said to do. And he was going to keep the vow he made while in the belly of the fish. The problem with the American church is we've been in the belly of the fish. We've been vomited out. We've been re-swallowed, vomited out, re-swallowed, vomited out, re-swallowed, vomited out. And we call it rededication. We call it backsliding cured. We call it the Lord's changed. We call it everything except what it is. And what it is is pathetic. It's time that the people of God stand up and fulfill our vows. Come on, do you want the Lord to be pleased with you? I have one more, two more verses from the book of Jonah. Look at the fourth chapter and the sixth verse. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the vine. Of course, in the very next verse, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. So what is God? Is he cruel? God has the right to bring blessing or judgment into your life to teach you. And He will use both. But it just so happens that we rarely learn from our blessing. Vine in the book of Jonah is salvation. Jesus is that vine. And we love to live in His shade. The worm is sin that eats it. It's called the tola worm. It leaves an indelible stain that only Christ Himself can remove. We get to choose where we're going to live and it's largely our attitude that chooses it. I would like to close with this thought. It comes from Luke 11, verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. There's always a religious spirit that is trying to divert us from the truth. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. How do you get blessed, church? By obeying the word. And then in verse 29, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. Jonah's generation was wicked. Our generation is wicked. It asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. What does the sign of Jonah look like then? The sign of Jonah is that you need the very same mercy you're preaching about. That broken and ordinary men can be resurrected from the dead. If I was Nineveh, I would have said, send somebody besides Jonah. He doesn't have the right heart. But Nineveh didn't say that. They were so happy to get a shot at salvation, they didn't pick apart their preacher. They were just happy to be included in the truth. The mystery of Jonah is that out of the belly of destruction, we often find the mouth of salvation. The mystery of Jonah is that the moment faithfulness springs up, righteousness looks down, and it doesn't matter how dead you are, he can bring life out of death. 
No sign will be given this generation except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah happens every time a man acknowledges his sin, dies to the world, and is remade in Christ. Matthew Pirro is a sign of Jonah. Eric Stevens is a sign of Jonah. Steve Richards is a sign of Jonah. It's not that we've never been on the right, the right road headed the wrong direction. It's been we would rather acknowledge our sin, be guilty and thrown into the sea, into the hands of God, than to continue in our pride and die. We may not be the preachers you deserve, but we're the ones you got. And the message we're giving you is right. The question is, what are you going to do with it? When I think of glaring contradictions, I could find no greater contradiction than maybe these sentences. They come from 2 Corinthians 4. It's verse 5 and 6. It is our last scripture for the day. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Where were we when His light shone on us? We were in darkness. That's the only place His light becomes visible. That's when you first perceive of Him. But look what He goes on to say. But we have this treasure in jars of clay showing that His all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now look at these contradictions. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Friends, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. You are not the only one that struggles with sin. You are not the only one with a war raging inside of you. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in the 7th chapter of Romans eloquently. The problem is you have to live it. And there is an answer. And it says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. It sounds like he's saying he should be thrown in the sea. But instead, the Spirit of God rushed in and said, there's no condemnation for you. There's no condemnation for you. I'll put to death your sinful nature. And this is when life begins. What was Jonah's mission? Put it in your bulletin if you want. It was a mission of mercy. God has never picked perfect vessels to share His mercy with the world. He just picked willing ones. And when they weren't willing immediately, He's able to tune you up. What was this time period? He was in a time period of failing chaos for Israel. Who were His contemporaries? Amos and Hosea. They knew the judgment of God was coming and so... Did Jonah, it's precisely why he didn't want to go. But God's ways are above ours. What is his sign? His sign is that God takes disobedient men who deserve death and he raises them to life and makes them ministers of righteousness. Saints, you have a choice today. 
It's our first message of the year and people are going to make their resolutions. I don't think much of resolutions because they rarely last the year, much less a lifetime. Today I say get swallowed all the way or get spit out all the way. If Baal is God, go serve Him. But if the Lord is God, then put to death whatever belongs to Baal and let's serve Him. Could we stand to our feet?